Good morning, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors. I want to welcome all of you here in this room, next door in venue, Facebook Live. We're so glad that you join us today. And before we dive into the message, I have a 2020 update for you. Our current project is to build a college center and coffee house as close to Cabrillo College as we possibly can. The slab is in, and we are still working on some of the underground utilities and drainage, uh, putting back together some of the repairs that we had to do between this building and Munsky Hall. But in about two weeks, the structural steel will arrive, and, and that's when the building starts to kind of rise out of the ground. You'll be able to see the skeleton of it. It's going to be all very exciting. So please continue to keep this in your prayers, and thank you so much for your ongoing financial support, which is making this possible. And if you are new to all of this and you would like to have an impact, on college students, on our community at large, I invite you to check out our 2020 vision on our website, or you can also grab a brochure out in the center of the lobby right after church today. Well, now I invite you to grab your message notes as we continue with our series, Rhythm, about the spiritual practices of Jesus. We're specifically looking at how to make space in our lives, especially during this time of Lent, room for our relationship with God, and with others, and here's why we need this. I read a fascinating article in the Washington Post called Why Being Busy Makes Us Feel So Good. Uh, the author put together a focus group, and this is what she discovered. One man says he works 72 hours a week because everyone else at his office does. He's thinking about cutting back on sleep so he can be more productive. Good luck with that. A woman says the last time she had a moment for herself was when she went for her annual mammogram. Another says she has decided that life is too hectic to have kids ever. Then a woman bursts in, apologizing for being late to this focus group, convened precisely to discuss the fast pace of modern life. She got stuck in traffic, she explains, to which the author adds, we are not in New York, Washington, Los Angeles, or another frenetic type A city. We're in Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> she continues. People now, people now tell pollsters that they're too busy to register to vote, too busy to date, to make friends outside the office, to take a vacation, to sleep, to have sex. As for multitasking, one survey found that 38 million Americans shop on their smartphones while sitting on the toilet. <laughs> and another found that the compulsion to multitask was making us as stupid as if we were stoned. Now, why would anyone want to live this way, if you could even call it living? Well, as one member of the focus group said, if you're busy, you're important. You're leading a full and worthy life. Now, how many of you buy that? Yeah, me either. This is why we need to discover the kind of rhythm that Jesus had in his life, times of intensity balanced by times of solitude, times when he fasted and, and then he feasted. Because listen, frenetic, scattered, hyper-busy people end up spiritually and relationally barren. So this week, as we look at the life 
of Jesus. We're going to talk about meditation, memorization, and more. Now, meditation means different things to different people. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, meditation is about giving focused attention to God's word, God's ways, and God's wonders. And the question really isn't whether or not we meditate. Really, the question is what or who do we meditate on? For example, worry is a form of meditation. Having your mind turn over and over about, you know, what might happen in this election year or with the coronavirus or the stock market. And I'm not suggesting that we should stick our heads in the sand, but we can get so worked up, so caught up in this, it becomes a form of negative meditation. And have you noticed something? Have you noticed that the more you think about something, the more it gets lodged into your memory? Example, uh, years ago, uh, there was a guy in this church, one of our ushers named Buck Harris. Anyone remember Buck Harris? (laughs) Buck was a riot. And one of the things that Buck loved, just absolutely loved, was baseball. And on one occasion, Buck, his wife, Jean, along with my wife, Laura, and myself, we went to a Giants game, and it was so fun watching Buck because, you know, he gets settled into a seat, he's got his Giants cap on and his, his jacket, and he's got one of those scorecards for, like, the super fans, and he marks, he charts what happens with every single pitch throughout the game. I mean, he's completely immersed, and it won't come as a shock that it got kind of cold that night at AT&T Park. And so when the game goes to extra innings, I look at Laura and Jean. We're like, let's get out of here. We can listen to the rest of the game on the drive home. But I, I really couldn't press that because there's Buck, on the other hand. He's giddy. He's delighted. It's like, we get more baseball. <laughs> and so we stayed to the bitter end. All 13 innings. The four of us and the seagulls and the players. Driving home well after midnight, Laura and Jean, they immediately fall asleep. I'm driving, I don't have that luxury. And so I'm getting kind of groggy though. And so to keep me awake, Buck starts telling me about games that he he watched 50 and 60 years ago, and not just, you know, generally, he's like an announcer telling me pitch by pitch, and next to the plate, it's Joe DiMaggio, and I'm going, how in the world is he able to do this? I've never heard anybody do this in my entire life, and I'll tell you his secret, he meditated on those games, so much so that they became etched into his memory. Well, there's somewhat of a parallel when it comes to Jesus and Scripture. Luke's gospel has an amazing story from Jesus' youth. And in chapter 2, Luke writes, When Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to the feast. While his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. So here's the picture Joseph and Mary are traveling with relatives, a large group. Uh, They're making their way back to Galilee, and apparently they're not helicopter parents because they travel for an entire day before one of them looks at the other and says, hey, have you seen Jesus? And they're like, I thought you were watching Jesus. Any parents ever find yourself in the same position? 
I have more times than I care to admit. So they rush back to Jerusalem, where after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So clearly Jesus is a prodigy. And we may be tempted to think, well, I mean, he was God in flesh, so did he really ever have to learn anything? Well, I think it's safe to say that he learned how to walk, how to eat, how to talk, how to read. We know specifically from Scripture that he allowed himself to experience hunger, thirst, fatigue, pain, to be human in every way except one, sin. And so personally, I find it hard to imagine that Jesus would take shortcuts when it comes to internalizing Scripture. In fact, Luke's account of this ends with a fascinating little detail, verse 52, where he says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Commenting on this very passage, John Calvin wrote this. It takes nothing from his glory, neither does it denigrate him that he chose not only to grow in body, but to make progress in mind. So in the synagogue and, and in solitude, Jesus gives much focused attention to Scripture, so much so that around age 30, John's gospel records that one day, Jesus went up to the temple and began to preach. The Jews were astonished at it, saying, how does this man have such learning when he has never been taught? And you see this type of response over and over again in the Gospels. And not only that, but when the religious leaders, they try to stump him, he kind of turns the situation on its, on its head and exposes their ignorance. For example, in Matthew 12, 3, Jesus said to them, haven't you read in the scriptures? And he goes on to talk about an event in the Old Testament. He's like, come on, guys. You got to go back to the books. You got to read this again. You are missing it. In fact, I've listed several occasions just in Matthew's gospel where Jesus uses the exact same phrase. Haven't you read in the scriptures? It leaves them speechless, his grasp of scripture. And not only that, but they marvel at the fact he didn't go to their Bible schools. He didn't sit under any other rabbi. But by meditating on and memorizing scripture, he is, I believe, by example inviting us to dive into the pool with him. You know what I mean? To become, thank you. <laughs> it's that same kid, he came back. <laughs> he invites us to become deeply immersed in the word of God. Now to be clear, just because someone is familiar with the Bible is no guarantee that they are becoming more and more like Jesus. You've probably met someone. They can quote scripture left and right, but they're also kind of a jerk. You know what I mean? Uh, how do you, how do I, how do we avoid that same trap of being kind of 
puffed up by knowledge or something like that. Well, let's look at how to experience the transformational power of Scripture in the time we have remaining. I, I want to share with you five specific principles today uh, that we can all apply, and keeping in mind this isn't just about getting into Scripture. Far more important, this is about getting Scripture into us. And so with every principle, I've included a little prayer that's basically inviting God to make this an ever-increasing reality in our lives. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about how Jesus washes his church with his word, cleanses us in our hearts and in our minds. I want you to imagine. Imagine going through your, the course of your week, you encounter various people, and, and it is only on the rarest of occasions that you fall into thoughts of envy, lust, anger, pride, self-consciousness. Imagine to the contrary, that far more often, with rare exceptions, when you encounter other people, you see them as God does. You hope and pray that he will bless them because of his love for them. I mean, wouldn't it be great to have a heart like that? That's the kind of transformation we're talking about. And, and I, I, keep in mind that meditating on Scripture, memorizing Scripture, these are not necessarily ends in and of themselves. They lead to something more. They lead to the transformation of our very being. And it begins when, first of all, I see the value. I see the value of God's word. Because if the Bible is, you know, you view it as somewhat irrelevant to your life, you're probably not going to be motivated to pick it up and read it. But I want you to see what Jesus says about the preciousness, the essential value of God's word in this next passage. And to give you some context, Jesus has just fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days without eating. And that's when Satan comes to him saying, if you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Like problem solved. But according to Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus doesn't deny his need for bread, but he affirms that just as essential, uh, our bodies, they need nourishment, but our souls need nourishment as well. And would you agree that we live in a soul-starved culture? People's souls are just starving. I mean, think of the explosion of information just in the last 12 years with the release of the very first iPhone, just 12 years ago. And yet now you go to any high school, go to any mall, go to any sporting event, and you will see people, what, staring into their phones. You go to the Grand Canyon, Yosemite, some amazing natural wonder, and what will you see? People staring into their phones. In fact, in 2016, there was a study that measured how often, in the, for the typical, typical person, how often do they touch, tap, type, swipe their screen on their phone, and they loaded the phones for the subjects with an app that would track all of this. And do you care to guess how many times just the average person touches their phone during the course of a day? So, 
2,617 times. If you're average, you touch, type, swipe. Heavy users do that twice as much. And it all speaks to an immense hunger. Not just for information, but for something so much deeper. Like decades before this technological information age, C.S. Lewis wrote, Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. But imagine, imagine if we had multiple touches with God's word every day. You know what I'm saying? Because this is where God meets us, feeds us, satisfies our souls, and informs our lives. And and listen, if if you find yourself honestly thinking, well, Mark, I, I just don't honestly have a real interest in Scripture. You know, it's okay to admit that. By the way, God already knows that. But you can ask Him for help. You can simply pray, increase my appetite. Give me hunger for your word, Uh, not out of guilt or duty, but because I, I, nothing else satisfies my soul like God's word. Well, like every endeavor, it starts with seeing the value. But along these lines, bear in mind the second principle, which is set realistic expectations. We've all learned that when we try to take on too much too soon, it typically ends in frustration and failure, right? Uh, If you were with us last week, uh, I said, you know, you can try to run a marathon. You can try, but the only people who actually finish it are the ones who train. Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 3. When he says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Training, becoming thoroughly equipped. These things take time, right? There's a process. So so as you seek to incorporate scripture into your lives in ever-increasing ways, pray, bless my steps, Lord. My little incremental steps, would you bless them? Because it is amazing how steady, sustained progress can can lead to, to just amazing outcomes, can make a huge difference. And by way of illustration, I want to share with you the amazing story of a man named Cliff Young. Anyone ever heard of Cliff Young? Yeah, I wouldn't think so, because Cliff is really only known in the world of ultra marathon runners. And every year in Australia, there's an ultra marathon from Sydney to Melbourne. It's 544 miles. Can you imagine a foot race? 544 miles. The race obviously is only attempted by world-class athletes and it takes five days to complete. Well, in 1983, Cliff Young shows up at the race. He's 61 years old. He's wearing overalls and work boots, but much to everyone's shock, he grabs his race number from the registration table and joins the other runners. They look at them, the press look at him, and they're like, you are crazy. There is no way that you can finish this race. They're they're actually concerned for his safety. But Cliff, Cliff says, I can finish this race. 
I grew up on a farm where we couldn't afford tractors or horses, and every time a storm would blow in, it would scatter our sheep. We had thousands of acres, and so sometimes I would run for two and three days running down these sheep, and I always caught them. And so I will finish this race. Well, the gun goes off, and immediately all the professional athletes, they leave Cliff in the dust. And people are like, who is this guy? He doesn't even run like a normal runner. He has like this shuffle. He just kind of goes like this. In fact, on screen, this is actual footage of Cliff Young in this race. You can see he's not a spring chicken here. And the way this works is that the runners will, will run each day 18 hours, and then they'll sleep for six However, nobody tells this to Cliff Young. And so he just keeps shuffling through the night, running nonstop, going and going and going. And in the process, he starts gaining on all the other runners. And so one by one, he starts to catch them and pass them. Here's a very humiliating moment for one of the other athletes, because look at this guy, look at his physique compared to Cliff Young, but it's like, nice meeting you, and I'll see you at the finish line. And he just keeps shuffling on and on until the last night after five days, the first person to cross the finish line is Cliff Young. It is absolutely amazing. In fact, he sets a new course record in the process. And one little detail I just love about this is they hand him the prize, which is a check for $10,000. Cliff Young didn't know that there was a prize. <laughs> he just wanted to run in the race, and so he gives $2,000 to each of the five guys that came in immediately after him. I mean, just an absolutely amazing guy, amazing story, but it shows the power of incremental progress. Now listen, you don't have to be the ultra marathon runner of Bible study where you just have hours and hours a day, but I bet you can manage a few minutes. In fact, if you're, you're new to this, maybe you just read one verse a day and then you ask God to bring that to your mind and your memory throughout the day, thinking about its implications in your life. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have free Bibles available at our information desk. Uh, also, a great use of your phone is there are Bible apps where you can download like every version in just about every language on earth on your, on your phone for free. This is like something that history has never seen before. If you don't know how to do that, see me after the service, I'll show you how to do that. But these first two principles are really about getting going, putting a regular absorption of the word into our lives. The next three, which we're gonna go through rather quickly, are about how to make the most when we meditate and memorize God's word. And, the, and this third principle is this, stay open to correct, correction. Stay open to correction. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's word is alive. It will speak to us if we allow it. This is so important. 
Because the same book that can make people wise and winsome and Christ-like can make others feel holier than now. Impressed with their knowledge rather than seeking to be impressed upon through the knowledge of Scripture. In, Jesus prayed in John 17, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to be made holy, to be made like Jesus. And so when you place yourself before his word, it's never a bad idea to pray, soften my heart. Lord, help me to be open to cor correction and guidance because last I checked, none of us are per perfect. And so we all have room in our lives for correction, don't we? Well, this brings us to the fourth principle. To encourage this type of transformation, when you read Scripture, it is better to soak rather than skim. I mean, take time to soak in a passage before you move on to the next one. And you might think of it this way. No one takes a bath just to get wet. You know what I mean? You don't go, well, that 30-second bath was just so relaxing. I just feel so wonderful now. Now, remember when you were a kid and you took a bath and you had your toys and you had the bubbles? In my case, I often had my brother. <laughs> Excuse me. I digress. <laughs> but do you remember after a while, your, your fingers, they would look like prunes. They'd get all shriveled up because you, you were literally soaked. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Let it penetrate you. Or Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. And by the way, those are incremental steps that are being described there, right? They're walking and then they're standing then they're sitting, and that's where they are. So we're always moving in one direction or another, aren't we? But, verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and he is blessed as a result. So pray, saturate my mind, Lord. Wash me with your word as I immerse myself in it. And finally, this, this fifth principle is so absolutely essential, and I've been beating this drum throughout this message, but it's this, seek transformation, not just information, because this was a huge blind spot for the, the religious experts. They were experts in the law in the time of Jesus. They meditated on it. They memorized it far more than you or I probably ever will, and yet their hearts remained hard in their opposition to Jesus. And in John 5, 39, Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. We miss Jesus. We miss the whole point. We, we miss the central figure, the core of our Bibles is Jesus. It all points to him. And so every time you open your, your Bible, pray, lead me to Jesus. 
I want to encounter him. I want to grow in my relationship with him. I want to fall in love with him as I encounter him in his word. And I'll close with an an inspiring real-life example of this. In the life of a man who had very little advantages in this regard, and yet God's word penetrated his heart and transformed his life. The man you see on screen, his name is Fadil. He's an Iraqi refugee living in Amman, Jordan. Several people in this church have been to Amman, where there are hundreds of thousands of refugees from Syria in Iraq. And if Fadil's life wasn't difficult enough, he's also blind. So imagine starting over at his age in a foreign country. Well, a while back, members of a Christian group called the Navigators, they focus a lot on discipleship, Bible study. Uh, The team is in Amman, and they meet Fadil. And noticing that he's blind, they give him a solar-powered MP3 player that's loaded with the entire Bible in Fadil's language, a, a dialect of Arabic. And sometime later, two, three years later, another team, a follow-up team, returns to Amman, and they reconnect with Fadil. And when they do, they are stunned. Because first of all, Fadil has become a follower of Jesus. He has encountered Jesus in his word. And not only that, but in a relatively short time, Fadil has managed to memorize 87 chapters of the Bible. Yeah, that was the response of this team as they listened to him recite several chapters out of John's gospel. They're just they're blown away. One team member said, it was humbling because for us, we memorize a couple of verses, but he memorizes chapters. He just meditates on scriptures day in and day out. He's like the man in Psalm 1. Then the leader of the team, a man who doesn't lack necessarily for resources or Bible knowledge. He said this, Fadil is someone who would seem unremarkable in the ways of the world, but being in his small, modest home and being in the presence of greatness as God's word filled the room was an amazing experience. Now, let me ask you, If God can use a blind Iraqi refugee quoting scripture from memory to a group of American Christians in a language they don't even comprehend, and yet he leaves them amazed and encouraged and inspired, I wonder what the Lord could do in our lives, how he could use us as we are transformed by the power of his word. I just wonder. And if that's something that you aspire to see grow in greater and greater ways in your life, then I invite you to join me in prayer as we ask God to make this a reality. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your church. We thank you for the fellowship. We thank you for the the, worship that we're able to offer back to you. And we thank you, Lord, for your word, for the, its transformational power. And so, Lord, we invite you by your spirit to press it into our souls and our, our, our mindset 
And Lord, I know there are people in this room, they have, they have fed on your word for a lifetime. And, and there is a winsomeness to them and, and a wisdom that they have and a grace to them that touches everyone around them. They're just such a blessing. And there are those, Lord, maybe this is the first day in church and they've never even really read a Bible before, but I pray that wherever we are in this spectrum, that Lord, you would ignite a flame in our heart. You would give us a desire, a hunger to feed on your word, to be immersed in it, to be transformed by it. And Lord, I just, I believe that were this to be something that would really take hold and really take off in our midst, Lord, that it would transform not just this congregation, but it would touch lives of people in our community, people who are hungry and they don't even know why. And so, Lord, would you give us the desire by your grace to become people of the word in ever increasing ways. May we grow in the grace and truth that it holds out for us. We pray this in the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus Christ. All God's people said, amen, amen. amen.